This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Here at The Bunker, we're running a listener survey so you can tell us what you like about the podcasts and what we can do better. So why not fill it out either after you've listened or while you're listening? Hello, I'm Jacob Jarvis and welcome to The Bunker USA. On November 22nd, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed as he was being driven through Dallas, Texas in an open top limousine sitting beside his wife Jackie. Those points are accepted as fact, at least by most people. But nearly everything else surrounding JFK's death has been disputed, and six years on, it remains the subject of intense scrutiny. Joining me to discuss how this incident and the information vacuum it created has spawned countless conspiracy theories is Tom Phillips, the co-author of Conspiracy, A History of Bollocks Theories and How Not to Fall for Them. Tom, welcome to the bunker. Oh, thank you for having me. Tom, first of all, can we lay the groundwork a little bit? What is the official narrative of JFK's death and who came up with that exactly? Okay, so the what I'm about to say is kind of the official narrative, except... Not precisely, for reasons that I'll get into. <laughs> okay, so, as you said, Friday 22nd November, 2.30pm in Dallas, uh, his motorcade is going on its planned route uh, to a lunch event that he's got. It turns onto Elm Street, past the Texas School Book Depository. Lee Harvey Oswald, a 24-year-old former US Marine who a few years earlier had defected to the Soviet Union and then undefected back again, fires three rifle shots from the sixth floor of the book depository. The first shot completely misses the car, hitting the curb instead. The second shot goes through President Kennedy's neck before hitting Texas Governor John Connolly, uh, passing through his chest before injuring his wrist and his leg. The third and final shot hits President Kennedy in the head, fatally wounding him. He's pronounced dead about half an hour later. Lee Harvey Oswald is the only shooter. After the shooting, he leaves the book depository, goes back to his lodgings where he changes into a jacket and picks up a pistol. About 1.15, he's stopped by a policeman who he shoots dead. And about 25 minutes after that, he's arrested. Uh, he's arrested initially for the murder of the policeman. He's only charged with Kennedy's death the morning after that. The morning after that, on Sunday the 24th, as Oswald is being transferred to the county jail, he is shot and killed by Jack Ruby, who's a local nightclub owner. And that kind of brings it to an end. There is no trial because the suspect is dead. And so as a result of that, we have, you know, the official narrative emerges from something called the Warren Commission, which is set up in the aftermath to kind of look into what happened, because there isn't going to be a trial. So you need some other kind of way of finding out the facts. And large parts of it were televised as well, weren't they? For example, you know, the the when he was being taken to court, wasn't it? it was when uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was shot by Jack Ruby. So that's on live TV, the, the incident happening. 
Exactly. It's on live TV, which was quite deliberate. Like, the police were actually thinking they needed to kind of get a good shot of him for the press being transferred to the county jail. And so, you know, like, they deliberately brought him out in an area where they knew there would be lots of press. And, you know, this has both fueled conspiracy theories and also it's just provided a huge amount of material for the conspiracy theories. So as I say, you have, you know, the official narrative comes very much from the Warren Commission and then... Over a decade later, in 1978-79, there's something called the uh, House Selected Committee on Assassinations, which looks at both JFK's death and Martin Luther King's uh, murder as well. They by and large agree with the Warren Commission, but they say one crucial thing that's different. Based on a last-minute piece of evidence that they get given, they conclude that there was a second shooter that day, and therefore a conspiracy, or I suppose a really weird coincidence. This is kind of the thing that really, really embeds that narrative. But even then, that's kind of the official narrative. Neither of them is quite what I just said. The Warren Commission is basically what I just said, but it differs in which order the shots came in, which actually turns out to be quite crucial and fuels a lot of conspiracy theories in itself. And obviously, the House Committee, it says that there was a second shooter, which isn't part of the official narrative. You also have, in between these two things the prosecution of a man named Clay Shaw by the New Orleans district attorney, Jim Garrison. That happens in 1967. Clay Shaw is found not guilty. The prosecution fails. This is where an awful lot of the conspiracy theories come from, because Jim Garrison worked up a huge, sprawling conspiracy theory to explain it. This is uh, turned into a best-selling book that Garrison wrote, and it's the basis for the film JFK, which lots of people have seen, and which kind of is probably actually the narrative that most people know best, I think, which is kind of a problem because it's complete nonsense. So the main question, as far as I can see around it, is the dispute tends to not be around whether Lee Harvey Oswald was involved, but whether Lee Harvey Oswald did it as a as a lone shooter. The lone is the, the big question there. With the report and the, the Warren Commission... Is there a an aspect that basically if it were a conspiracy and there were other people involved or a foreign government involved, that would be a an intelligence failing from the people who are meant to protect the president? So essentially, they certainly want the narrative to be that it's a lone shooter. So is this the that sort of inception of people going, well, don't trust the government because they'll make the result of things be what they want it to be? Because it almost succinctly is what they would want the answer to be. Yeah, and the thing is, there's absolutely no denying that this is the result that uh, at least part of the government wanted. President Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, who became president after Kennedy died, he was adamant that he the result he wanted was that it was a lone shooter. That's less because of things like intelligence failures. It's because he was terrified that if it had been the Soviets or the Cubans, who were the sort of prime suspects in the beginning... He thought that the Cold War was about to get very hot, if that was the case. He'd just been given a briefing about how many millions of Americans would die in a nuclear conflict, and he was terrified. And yes, you also have the intelligence agencies. They uh, don't entirely cooperate terribly well with the Warren Commission. The FBI is busy covering its ass because they had had contact with Lee Harvey Oswald. He was on their radar because, you know, he's a guy who'd previously defected to the Soviet Union. Um, they'd had contact with him before, and obviously they hadn't gone, oh yeah, this guy's going to shoot the president. And so they'd kind of, you know, blown it a little bit. The CIA 
they kind of were passive aggressively unhelpful with the Warren Commission. That was mostly because they wanted to keep the covert things they were doing covert. You know, they were running a large assassination program targeting huge numbers of foreign leaders that the USA didn't approve of. They didn't want that to come out. And given that one of the prime theories to begin with was that Cuba was doing it in retaliation for all the assassination attempts against Fidel Castro, the CIA was worried that would come out. There was also a lot more just really basic ground level stuff. They didn't want to admit a bunch of their surveillance capabilities. You know, a couple of weeks before the assassination, Oswald had gone to the Cuban embassy in Mexico, uh, which you know, the CIA had surveillance up on. They didn't want to give away the fact that they had the phones bugged and were taking pictures of everyone who went in and out. I saw this Don DeLillo quote around this about just how surreal it was and how much it's it splintered people's perception of reality in certain ways. You know, eyewitnesses and any kind of witness testimony surely has to be considered in the through the lens of the fact that they've just witnessed the President of the United States be assassinated, which is about one of the strangest things you could imagine seeing, isn't it? Absolutely. And like, in the best of circumstances, humans are really not very good eyewitnesses. You know, the best time to get eyewitness testimony from anybody is immediately after the event, before they've told the story multiple times. Because every time you tell a story, you embellish it a little bit. Every time you know what you were supposed to have seen, you start moving your story to what you were supposed to have seen. You see this, it's one of the things that actually fuels a lot of the conspiracy theories, is that in the aftermath of it, people reported seeing Lee Harvey Oswald everywhere. So one of the major strands of lots of the conspiracy theories is that there were imposter Oswalds, you know, that actually that wasn't him at the Mexican embassy, that that wasn't him doing this, that there were multiple Oswalds, there were decoys, there were people pretending to be him. No, it's just like, this guy has suddenly become the most famous man in the world temporarily. He looks like a regular guy. Like he just looks so completely nondescript. And so you get these floods of people going like, oh yeah, I saw him in a bowling alley in Des Moines. You know, like, no, you didn't. You just saw a guy. And people like to be part of the story, you know? And so that's the kind of thing. It's like, no one wants to go like, oh yeah, that time that I was in Dallas and I would have seen Lee Harvey Oswald if I hadn't stopped to tie my shoelace. What are the other most common conspiracy theories that we see? And then what are some of the more weird and surprising ones that maybe go under under discussed? There's two aspects to this. There's one is the sort of the immediate evidence. And so you've got things like the idea that there was a second shooter uh, who's normally placed on the, the grassy knoll, as it's yeah. known. But there's sometimes there's loads of theories where there was a third shooter, there was a fourth shooter, there was just, you know, everybody doing that. So you've got that kind of, there's theories about that uh, which are basically, you know, picking apart the evidence on the day. One of the big ones is uh, the number of bullets that were fired, which, as I said, the Warren Commission kind of, we think, got the order of the bullets wrong. They thought that the first shot was the one that hit the president in the neck and then hit the governor of Texas in the back, wrist and thigh. And this, more than anything else, is what kind of discredited the Warren Commission's report, because... It was believed, if you've seen JFK, it's probably the most famous scene in it, the magic bullet that supposedly has to zigzag back and forth and pause for 1.2 seconds in midair and then do a U-turn and, you know, this completely impossible trajectory the bullet had. Now, actually, a lot of that is based on some false assumptions. 
Uh, one of it is based on um, an exit wound being mistaken for an entry, ru- entry wound uh, on the president. Uh, but most of it's based on the position that the two men were sitting in. It assumes, if you think back, you know, again, the reconstruction in the movie, you've got two people sitting directly behind one another at the same height. Actually, they weren't. Kennedy was leaning well over to the right. Connolly was sitting more to the left. And also Kennedy's seat was higher up because it was a presidential limousine. And actually, when you reconstruct it and actually put their real body positions in place, that magic bullet trajectory goes away. It becomes a straight line. And in fact, it's a straight line that basically points back to the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. So that's one of the things. But yeah, like it's totally plausible to see why people thought that can't happen. You've been able to discuss so many kind of highly specific details, I would say, around this. And obviously there was a fascination in this event because it's it's the youngest ever president of the United States, the first Catholic president of the United States, and he is assassinated. He's an incredibly charismatic figure and figurehead, of course. But also it coincides with there being such a a new way that mass media could approach events like this. When I was researching this, I was surprised at the level of kind of gory detail I could find, like Jackie apparently having said, uh, they, they've shot my husband, his brains in my hands and stuff. And I thought, oh, that's it's just a very ho- horrible detail. But is that why this birthed the the modern day style of conspiracy theory because of mass media being able to pour over so many specific details. And then when you have that many specifics, it's easy to make random links because it's it's quite scattergun and you can kind of create a sort of spreadsheet flowchart of all these random points and tie them together. Yeah, absolutely. As you said at the beginning, like on the one hand, there's an information vacuum about this for the simple reason that Oswald was shot. We never got a motive. We don't know why he did it. We never heard from the main suspect. On the other hand, you have this absolute explosion of evidence. There is so much there. And so much of the conspiracy theories are based on just diving into this overwhelming trove of evidence and trying to pick out things that don't seem quite right. And of course, the thing is, if you look at that much evidence, you'll always find something that doesn't seem quite right, because the world is weird and complex and messy, and people do strange things, and people don't make the best decisions immediately, and all of that sort of stuff. The conspiracy theory started pretty quickly. By about 1964, the year after it, they're in full flow. These are not the preserve of, like, fringe lunatics. Bertrand Russell one of the intellectual giants of the 20th century, like genuinely like smart, one of the smartest guys who lived, you know, he was a huge and early Kennedy conspiracy theorist. And if you look at some of his writing about it, it really, really brings this out. I say, you've got this guy who is, to be clear, much, much smarter than me, but he's doing things like he's pulling out. The official narrative in this includes things like a mistaken caption on a photo in Life magazine, an AP story based on an interview with Oswald's former Marine commander that was then retracted because the guy went, oh, no, wait a second, I was thinking of somebody else. A prosecutor in Dallas um, slightly misstating the result of a forensic test in a press conference, picking apart all of these little things and kind of going like, oh, well, look, why hasn't this been reported more? Because it doesn't matter. Because, like, you know, people make mistakes. It's not evidence of a conspiracy. Or certainly, it's not enough evidence of a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In this age of social media sleuthing where people can access so much stuff and pour over it and discuss it with people in, in real time, getting these theories to, to multiply and multiply and multiply, you know, where does the line between speculation and interrogation blur into conspiracy theory? Is a lot of that due in part to the rise of amateurs, sort of amateurism in this detective work that happens? I mean, there's certainly a degree to which the fact that anybody can do this now and have their work be publicly viewable and anybody can go and pick through the best bits. So you kind of have this crowdsourced conspiracy theorizing. That's definitely part of it. But to be absolutely clear, very well qualified people have always done this. Go back to a previous presidential assassination. For several years after Abraham Lincoln was murdered, the government was convinced that the Confederate leadership must have been in on it. And they went looking for evidence to support that conclusion. That was the government that was doing that. It wasn't untrained amateurs. It was literally the chief legal officers of the United States. Um, and they absolutely did all of the things that you shouldn't do. You know, you've got the conclusion and you're basically manufacturing evidence to fit it. Eventually, they had to acknowledge that it wasn't really the case. That's the same thing that Jim Garrison did with his JFK prosecution. He had a conclusion in mind and he went to manufacture evidence for it. And to be clear, when I say manufacture evidence, I mean bribing witnesses to change their stories, threatening witnesses. It really was manufacturing and coaching people to say the things he wanted to hear. Is in part some of this as well because that someone like JFK is so important to people and it feels as though the the results of the investigation are almost like Occam's razor was used. It's just, okay, the, the most simple explanation is probably the most likely explanation. And people, when something very important happens, almost have a bit of a cognitive dissonance where they go, well, something that consequential couldn't be that basic, could it? There has to be deeper meaning to it. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something called proportionality bias. Basically, massive events can't have small causes. We can see all of this you know, in recent times. A virus mutates in a bat in a cave somewhere in China, and then like a year later, it's a crime for me to leave my house. The cause and the effect don't seem to match up. We have this really inbuilt bias that the size of the effect and the size of the cause should be the same. Kennedy is one of the clearest examples of this. Um, it's far from the only one, but it's a really, really clear example. This was a world-shaking event, you know, traumatized the country. At the time, you can see absolutely why they go like, that can't just be the result of one guy, one loner with a gun, cannot make Camelot fall in that way. Of course, the interesting thing is that from our perspective, actually, that seems a lot more common and a lot more understandable. You know, you read about Lee Harvey Oswald's personality type. 
it may have been quite baffling at the time. To us, it seems horribly familiar. You know, he it struggles to form social relationships. He's emotionally volatile. He has a really strong sense of resentment that the world is kind of grinding him down. And at the same time, he has kind of grandiose ideas about his own place in history. He's extremely violent and controlling towards his wife. He's, you know, goes through mood swings. Uh, he's desperately searching for something bigger to be a part of. If you read that out to somebody and said, what's that guy famous for? The answer is going to be shooting up his workplace with an AR-15, right? Like it's it's a personality type we're horribly familiar with now, maybe less so in the 60s. So it may have seemed more mysterious then. Um, I think actually now you just go like, yeah, th- this tracks. It doesn't really track with the idea of him being a, you know, a Soviet agent or a US double agent or a Cuban agent. Like he wasn't the kind of guy that you would go for, for those kind of things. You know, he might have been the sort of person that, you know, the one theory is that he was just a fall guy. You know, they needed the local weirdo to pin something on. That's probably the more plausible version than like he was a master spy. If he was a master spy, then he had been deep cover as an embittered loser for a very long time. Well, I suppose that he seems like the sort of person who maybe would like to have been a master spy, but that doesn't mean that anyone else would like to use him as one, which is uh, which he, is quite important. He really specifically is trying to do that. You know, like when he defects to the Soviet Union, he seems kind of surprised that they don't really roll out the red carpet for him. In fact, initially they say, no, we don't want you. Um, they send him off to be a lathe operator in Minsk. And he's just like, I thought I'd be a hero. And... Then he gets bored of that. He says, can I come back to the US? And then he is dissatisfied with that life. He gets really into the Cuban cause because he's disillusioned with the Soviet Union, but he thinks that the revolution is there in Cuba. He tries to set up a local chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee go like, uh, we admire your enthusiasm, but we're not really interested right now. And he just fakes an entire membership organization just to make... In, he's he's a guy who's basically trying to fake it till you make it. And unfortunately, he then makes it in the worst way possible. Who are the people now in 2023 who are perpetuating more and more conspiracies about this? Because you'd imagine it would kind of run out a little bit. Has it? Is it that this conspiracy theory continues or has it morphed its way into other areas? I know in QAnon, for example, they have their slogan, where we go one, we go all, which they actually misattribute to John F. Kennedy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the sort of canonical conspiracy theories of the broader conspiracy universe now. When the Kennedy assassination happened, when there was a conspiracy theory, it was kind of explaining one event. Whereas now you have these things that are called super conspiracies, where they bring every possible event, every possible organization in together into one thing. The communists and the Freemasons and the Illuminati and the CIA and the Bilderberg group and possibly aliens sometimes, they're all in on it together. And it's this massive sprawling web. So kind of Kennedy has become, it's taken its part in that. But as you say, it's particularly for things like QAnon, it's quite a central thing. They've for a long time had this belief that either JFK himself or his son, JFK Jr., who also died, uh, were going to come back to life or that they were never really dead and that they would kind of do a big ta-da, here I am reveal at some point. And this has been very much like, you know, it's really like the second coming. It's always predicted and every time they give a date, it doesn't happen and then they're like, oh, 
it was a different date. As you say, they attribute their slogan, where we go one, we go all, to John F. Kennedy. It's not John F. Kennedy. It's the 1996 Ridley Scott maritime disaster movie, White Squall, is where that's from. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure Ridley Scott will be very angry about the historical inaccuracy there, because we know he's a stickler for that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, like it's, and it really is very, very weird. But as I say, it's, you did still, there's still an industry. There's a huge industry of Kennedy stuff. Thousands of books have been published, almost all of them finding a new angle on how there was a conspiracy. Some of them kind of going like, no, we've looked at the evidence and probably he was a lone shooter. There's been movies. It's just become this sort of cultural touchstone for a lot of us. And it's kind of really, really has sort of taken on a life of its own in that kind of way. It's now, you can't really have a conspiracy theory without folding John F. Kennedy into it. If your theory doesn't explain why Kennedy died, then, well, what's it even doing? (laughs) Yeah, well, I was going to actually, my final question to you was going to be, can this conspiracy theory ever die off or end? But I think I know what your answer to that would be, that no, there's not an answer to it, so people are going to continue to speculate about it. But can our conspiracy theories then just going to continue to actually just get more and more complex and infinitely malleable? Is there almost like a, I spoke about an information vacuum, but actually now is there this information black hole, which people are just going to fill up with more and more convoluted conspiracy theories forever? Yeah, I think that basically is the future. In terms of the Kennedy conspiracy theories themselves, you often see a thing where a conspiracy theory is sort of flavor of the time for a while, and then a bigger event comes along and sort of moves it aside a little bit. So, for example, when 9-11 happened, I feel like the Kennedy thing sort of went down a notch in terms of what it had to explain. When COVID-19 happened, 9-11 moved down a notch. Just as before that, you'd had a century of conspiracy theories about Abraham Lincoln. When Kennedy gets shot, those kind of take a back seat. But they're all still there. And I think that's one of the things that's really, really important to understand about modern conspiracy culture. As you said, there's all of this information that's out there. Every historical conspiracy theory is available for people to rediscover and mold to their current circumstances. A huge number of modern conspiracy theories go back to the French Revolution. They're an explanation for why the French Revolution happened that have been adapted to fit the circumstances over the years. The, this is where the Illuminati comes from. Is It was kind of the first modern conspiracy theory was that the Illuminati, which was basically a Bavarian book group, was responsible for the French Revolution. And that's still with us today. The QAnon conspiracy theories and other conspiracy theories, New World Order, all of that sort of stuff, they still have Abraham Lincoln as part of their conspiracy universe. They have Kennedy in there. They have 9-11 in there. They have COVID-19 in there and you know a huge number of other things as well. So yes, it feels like this age of super conspiracy that we're now in, where if you believe one conspiracy, you believe them all. This does feel like it's the future. Whether or not, you know, maybe that changes as how we share information changes, I don't know. But yeah, it feels like this kind of crowdsourced, incredibly complex conspiracy cinematic universe is what we'll be dealing with for quite some time to come. Tom, this has been a very interesting conversation, although not maybe the most hopeful note at the end. So (laughs) fingers crossed there are some people uh, not buying into all of that. Thanks so much for joining me for The Bunker. Thank you so much.
If you enjoyed The Bunk USA, remember you can back us on Patreon to get episodes ad-free and early from £3 per month. And your endorsements also mean the world to us. So if you have the time, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share an episode with a friend. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me for The Bunk USA. Daily was presented by Podmasters Managing Editor, Jacob Jarvis. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and the producers were Eliza Davis-Beard, Jade Bailey, and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin, art direction by James Parrott, music by Kenny Dickinson and Simon Williams. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Or was it?